welcome to this episode of the Arcananth podcast. It's your host, Michael here. This is the podcast that features interviews with anthropologists working today, hoping to discover useful and interesting things about people and our relationship with the world around us. Today, I'm so thrilled to welcome Dr. Liana Chua to the show. Liana, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello. Good morning. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing very well, thanks. Yeah, uh, just a small like behind the scenes uh, note. Mm-hmm. This is the first episode I'm actually recording in 2020. Oh, happy new year. Yeah, happy new year. All episodes prior to this were recorded in 2019. So this is very exciting for me to get back on the microphone again. How are your holidays and how is your 2020 going so far, Liana? Yeah, we, we had a nice quiet time. I'm, I'm at home in Cambridge. I've, I've been in Cambridge for pretty much the entire Christmas break. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, I've just packed the children off to school. So I'm looking forward to actually getting back to work as well. Yeah. Can you give the listeners an idea of where you currently work and what, broadly speaking, are your research interests? Yep. Uh, So I'm a social anthropologist and I currently work at Brunel University in London, which is actually sort of conveniently on the wrong side of London to Cambridge, (laughs) but it's a nice apartment and I've got great colleagues. Um, And I've worked for probably nearly 17 years now in the state of Sarawak, which is on the island of Borneo. It's it's, um, part of Malaysia. And I've mainly worked with members of an indigenous group called the Bidayu, who live in the sort of hills and um, general areas around the state capital, Kuching. Mm-hmm. And I've mostly worked um, on conversion to Christianity and ethnic politics and um, cultural politics among Bidayu communities in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but more recently, I've also been doing work with four small BW communities that got caught up in this dam construction and resettlement scheme. Um, so I've also been tracing uh, people's relationships to the land, their relationships to the state and development and understandings of environmental transformation over the last 12 years or so by following the entire scheme through from the preparation stages all the way through resettlement and um, now to the aftermath of resettlement. Um, so that's kind of my Bidayu background. What I'm currently doing as well, um, which kind of builds on my earlier research interest in environmental transformations, is uh, leading a couple of projects on orangutan conservation, um, by which I mean, I, I don't so much work with apes, uh, but with people who work with or live with apes. So at the moment, I'm leading uh, a fairly large European-funded multi-sited ethnographic uh, analysis hmm. of the global nexus of orangutan conservation in the age of the Anthropocene. Uh, and what I've got uh, is a sort of five-year project with a research team, and we're all doing fieldwork at different nodes of orangutan conservation and cumulatively trying to patch together an idea of how this one global conservation nexus operates in the so-called age of the Anthropocene, and then trying to think through some of that um, to come up with new conceptual and theoretical ways of understanding the Anthropocene as an idea, mm-hmm. a sort of political device, and also as a condition. Mm-hmm. When you say uh, the global nexus, I was wondering what you what you mean by that term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's a slightly fancy way of saying network, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, essentially, you know, w- when you think about the plight of the orangutan, from the outside, it looks deceptively simple, right? You've got these critically endangered apes in Borneo and Sumatra, so basically spread across Malaysia and Indonesia, um, who are facing the threat of extinction. Uh, And so you've got all these people um, working to save them in various ways. So this looks fairly straightforward from the outside. But what we're trying to understand is how this kind of project of saving the orangutan is in fact an extremely sort of complicated, sprawling, and often very messy set of connections and relations that stretch right across the world 
um, that sort of connect, you know, say, indigenous villages in the middle of Sumatra and Borneo to ordinary um, middle class animal lovers uh, sitting in front of their TV mm-hmm. screens in the UK, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by nexus, what we're, what we're really referring to are the sorts of connections and flows that you find between these different bits of orangutan conservation mm-hmm. and, and occasionally the gaps. I mean, there's, there's a lot of um, slippage that goes on in, in this nexus. Mm-hmm. So uh, you mentioned earlier that the, the social and like political and cultural aspects um, to, you know, life on the ground and, and locally around these orangutan uh, forests can be really, really complicated. Mm-hmm. Could you describe how complicated it is in a bit more detail? Yeah, okay. Um, so, um, I mean, the first thing to say, I think, is that there's a lot of diversity on the ground in Borneo and Sumatra. So what applies in one area may not necessarily apply in others. But speaking very, very generally, what we're finding through our research, um, through our reading, is, is that by and large, people in Borneo and Sumatra aren't really that interested in orangutans. So orangutans do not have the same sort of iconic, um, charismatic significance in Borneo and Sumatra, the places where they actually live, mm-hmm. as they do in the West, where you know they're incredibly prominent. Anytime you talk about extinction or biodiversity loss, up pops a picture of an orangutan. Mm-hmm. And so one of the big sort of tensions that we're trying to understand through our project is how this kind of what what sometimes to, to people on the ground seems like a sort of weird white person's obsession with one particular animal translates into um, real life conditions in rural areas in Borneo and Sumatra mm-hmm. and the sorts of effects that these kinds of conservation interventions can have on people's lives. So, for example, um, you know, let's say you're an ordinary villager uh, living in Borneo. You may occasionally come across orangutans in the, in the far off um, forest when you're going hunting, when you're going to look at your fish traps. But generally, if you encounter them, you don't, you don't think very much of them. Occasionally, they might wander into your farms or your fruit gardens, and then you get a bit upset because they then they take your food or they destroy your crops. Mm-hmm. Um, so generally, you know, they're, they're just not a big deal. They're, they're, sorry, they're just not a big deal. They're just another kind of animal that you might encounter in the forest. But then at some point, um, a conservation organization comes along. It starts to do some surveys for this one particular animal, and it asks you to help them. Okay, fine, you do that. And then a bit later on, the conservation organization might then start working with local and national governments to set aside a particular patch of forest, which you might see as customarily yours, where you do your hunting, your planting, your fruit picking, whatever, um, as a sort of protected area. And then somebody comes along and says, well, actually, from now on, you're no longer allowed to burn, collect stuff, plant stuff, cut down trees in this patch of forest mm-hmm. because we want to save this particular animal. Uh, at, that point, things, at, at, at that point, things start to get a bit messy because, you know, obviously, if you see it as your customary land, you start to wonder why on earth you're not allowed to actually use it in the way you always have. And the lines of communication haven't always been um, very well laid out um, in conservation interventions. And so, you know, that's just one example of how this kind of mismatch between interests or lack of interest in orangutans can actually cause some quite serious political and social effects on the Mm -hmm. ground, um, where you end up with people essentially getting displaced from their own customary land and forests and sort of breeding a sense of resentment, but also confusion over what's going on, uh, because these people have decided that this one animal, who to them is not that special, actually Mm -hmm. needs special protection. Mm-hmm. Well, that totally makes sense because it's basically the land that sustains them uh, and their daily life and, you know, conservation policies are, you know, really affecting, really affecting them. Mm-hmm. Is this the same view that they have um, regarding 
like other animals besides orangutans, other components of the environment, like maybe the you know natural um, you know greenery around as well? Um, I think it varies quite a lot. So one of the things to really keep in mind here is that people in Borneo and Sumatra are undergoing really quite rapid and far-reaching transformations at this point. Um, we, you know, when we when we think about say indigenous people or rural people in these areas, we tend to think of them as as being these sort of nature-loving, um, noble, savage types who live in the jungle and know instinctively how to how to live sustainably in the, in the environment. Um, this has uh, quite a significant kernel of truth. But we also have to bear in mind that in the last half century, people have converted from various forms of animism to uh, world religions like Christianity and Islam, and that has changed their relationship and beliefs about the environment. Um, many of them have also started to become interested in moving away from or complementing subsistence agriculture with cash cropping, mm-hmm. uh, with mining, with various forms of frontier development. Um, and it, it sort of makes sense because the sort of living living in a sort of milieu in which you do need money, you do need the resources to feed your family, to give your children an education, to get medical supplies and so on. Um, so in addition to the sorts of conflicts that you can find when conservation comes into these sorts of areas, you've also got all sorts of ongoing transformations and, and conflicts that are taking place independently of conservation, which, which just makes things a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so. If we're talking in the sort of relatively recent past, so kind of about 50 years ago, yes, you would probably argue that a lot of um, indigenous communities, um, particularly in Borneo, where I'm, which I'm much more familiar with, would have had quite specific relationships with the environment and with specific animals, of which orangutans would have been one example. So it's not uncommon, for example, to find um, uh, societies in Borneo which relate to various features of the environment as person-like things. You know, they might have a particular place spirit that they engage with. Um, they might have particular rivers that, they, that have stories attached to them and uh, stories attached to them and names attached to them. And so they enter into certain forms of reciprocal relations with these um, with these features of the environment. And you still see hints of that occurring today. So when I was doing my fieldwork in in Sarawak, for example, there were certain things about entering the jungle and working in and moving through the jungle that I had to learn because I had to respect the spirits that live there, even though the people I was with were mainly Christian. Um, but a lot of that is also changing in the present. So um, I think one of, one of the sort of problems that orangutan conservationists sometimes sometimes come up against when they try to better understand what's going on with indigenous people is that they go straight for the traditional stuff. You know, they go, they go for stuff that looks like quintessentially like culture, like traditional taboos, traditional beliefs, mm-hmm. um, his, uh, traditional ways of uh, managing and relating to the land without necessarily recognizing that all of these are also changing as we speak. Um, and this is actually, I suppose, where social anthropologists can come in um, to, to lend a slightly different perspective on, on um, indigenous people's lives and to actually show how it's not just them living in this kind of unchanged traditional past that matters. It's also what's going on in the present and how they're changing and adapting to um, contemporary challenges. That also makes a difference to the way they engage with conservation. Mm-hmm. When you're doing your field work, uh, what kinds of approaches are you taking? Are you taking observations? Are you filming them? Are you doing interviews with them? Um, it varies. Uh, so when I when I did my field work, uh, I mean basically the field work that I, the field work that, that I've done with Bidayus in in Sarawak has been very traditionally participant observation based. So when I did my PhD, I, I lived with one family for fifteen months. 
um, I basically entered this this pre-made web of relations and obligations. You know, I, I, I knew whose rice fields I had to help out in. I knew whose houses I had to go to if I needed water. I knew whose birthdays, whose funerals, whose weddings I had to attend. It was very immersive. It was basically me living with that family and just being part of their day-to-day life mm-hmm. without necessarily trying to pick and choose what topics I wanted to focus on. It was, it was a more sort of organic process of letting things emerge. Um, and I think that that mode of participant observation has really stayed at the core of our current orangutan research project. Although what we're also doing is mixing that up with various other methods. So for example, um, one of uh, the people working on my team, um, Hannah Fair, she's a postdoc, uh, she's actually working uh, with various UK-based orangutan charities, trying to understand the motivations and perceptions uh, of orangutan adopters. So basically people who virtually adopt orangutans in the UK in the hope of making a difference to, to their conservation. Mm-hmm. And so she's been doing mainly interview-based research, but also um, volunteering at these charities and trying to understand the day-to-day workings and decisions that they're making in order to raise awareness and funds um, for orangutan conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got um, a couple of other people who are working, who are doing much more traditional participant observation in Borneo and Sumatra. Um, Anna Stepien is working or about to start working with an orangutan rescue team in Sumatra. So that will be very immersive in the same way that I immersed myself during my PhD. Mm-hmm. And uh, Viola Shria, who's a postdoc, um, is, is, has just finished fieldwork in central Kalimantan looking at a community conservation scheme that's just been set up by a British conservation um, and Indonesian uh, conservation organization. And again, um, she did her PhD in the area and hers is very much a form of immersive particip- participant observation. And finally, what I'm doing is actually um, slightly more unusual in that I'm looking at different scientific and popular visualizations of orangutans. And that's not so easy to do through a kind of traditional participant observation method. So a lot of what I do is visual analysis and Mm -hmm. interviews with image makers and also a lot of uh, sort of detective work in trying to trace the ways in which images are created and then how they circulate across the world and have different effects as they move. Mm -hmm. Well, why do you think it is so you know, widespread this idea that the, uh, at least in Western media, that the orangutan is in trouble and that, you know, uh, anyone who lives in the West can help in this specific way by donating money to an organization and uh, they will stop, you know, deforestation and they'll stop this happening because it's, it seems so prominent, like from from what I see in Western media. And mm. uh, where do you, where do you think that comes from? Yeah, how many days have you got? Um, it's, it's a really, it, it's a long story, and um, uh, one of the things that I'm actually doing right now is is a, is a sort of historical excavation um, of of the, of the ways in which certain motifs and ideas about orangutans being in trouble and why they're in trouble um, have emerged and become part of the the popular consciousness. Right. So I'm currently doing a bit of research on this this really quite well established connection between orangutans and oil palm and palm oil consumption, um, which has become kind of the, uh, it's become styled as the central threat to orangutans in in the sort of Western popular consciousness. Um, But I think the first thing to say is that orangutans are in trouble. I think we can't really get away from that. Um, You know, there's been extensive research on the ground to show that, and a lot of number crunching to show that they are they are critically endangered. Uh, the numbers can be a bit fuzzy. There's a lot of guesstimates involved. Um, but essentially, I think it's hard to deny that, to deny that they are critically endangered. Um, the question, of course, is how you can actually save them. 
Um, and what mm-hmm. I'm finding really interesting looking at the sort of Western side of things is that a lot of this tends to dovetail with a pre-existing, um, I guess you could call it an imaginary um, of doing good or of, of giving aid um, that you also find in humanitarian aid campaigns, for example. Right? I think there's been a long running um, trope that we in the West, you know, we're developed, we're advanced, we've got lots of money. We can help others in these you know, third world countries, as they used to be called, um, to deal with their problems. And you see this manifested, you know, not only in global biodiversity conservation, but also in the sorts of humanitarian aid campaigns that have been running for uh, decades and decades. You think, for example, of, you know, the idea of starving children in Ethiopia is a big kind of theme in the 1980s, right? Um, and and this um, that song, Do They Know It's Christmas? I mean, I think that was a, a sort of earlier manifestation of this, uh, this kind of assumption, this trope um, that is still very prevalent today um, about somehow doing good by doing your little bit uh, to solve a particular problem in a faraway place. Right. Um, and so I think with orangutans, what's happened is that this sort of, we could call it a humanitarian trope, has now been transferred to a non-human other in the same way that we, we talk about trying to save tigers or polar bears or whatever. Right, they're, they're very, very similar kind of images and ideas about helping. Um, and it's then been merged with this kind of uh, dominant neoliberal sensibility that we find um, across the global north, which basically posits that individuals can choose to make a difference in the ways that they prefer. So if you're somebody looking at the website of an orangutan charity, for example, Okay, you get the message that orangutans are in trouble, they need to be saved. And, you know, because you've sort of got this this deeply ingrained sensibility in you generally, you feel that you ought to do something about it. What that sort of neoliberal sensibility does is give people a choice over how exactly they can do it. And so one of the great um, sort of marketing triumphs, I think, of the anti-palm oil, you know, the sort of boycott palm oil campaigns over the last 10 years is that it's given individual Western consumers a sense that what they are doing by not eating Kit Kat, by not consuming Nutella, is actually making a significant difference to orangutans halfway across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it becomes this question of you making a clever consumer choice and that having um, a significant effect on the ground. So I think it's a sort of combination of this need to help, this culturally um, embedded need to help, um, and a sense that you are able to help other countries from a position of privilege, plus the sense of consumer choice and power that have made it um, incredibly easy for Western individuals on this side of the world to feel like they can really make a difference to the plight of orangutans. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's a debate, of course, as to how much this actually has an effect in practice, um, which I don't want to go into too much. Mm-hmm. And it is fairly controversial because one of the things that, one of the biggest things that raises funds for orangutan causes on this side of the world is, um, is, is this, this, this sense of fundraising for orangutan rehabilitation centers. So these are centers where rescued orangutans, especially baby orangutans who have lost their mothers through conflict, through deforestation, through poaching, whatever, are basically trained to return to the wild by human carers uh, with, with this idea that, you know, eventually it'll be fantastic. They'll be released back into the wild and there'll be wild animals once again. Um, there's a big debate within orangutan conservation about 
the extent to which such schemes are actually financially viable um, and whether they are, in fact, nothing more than sticking plasters over a much more serious structural problem. You know, maybe we ought to be putting more resources into preventing deforestation, for example, or changing regulations mm-hmm. uh, that could make a much larger scale impact on the ground. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of that sort of debate going on. But what people on this side of the world tend to see are the rehabilitation centers. Um, and that's partly because they fit much, much more easily into that trope of consumer power and consumer choice, right? You mm-hmm. can choose to stop eating palm oil. You can choose to adopt an orangutan. You can choose to pay 50 pounds to provide um, round-the-clock babysitter care for such and such an orangutan. Um, so it's, I mean, it's a really interesting situation. Mm-hmm. But, and all of that would be, all of that is easier than perhaps like confronting um, like the global nexus of how, you know, different geopolitics and different mm-hmm. different sort of historical relationships between developed and developing countries are also sort of exacerbating the problem or causing new problems. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a very sort of, um, it's very, it's a very effective move. And, you know, to be fair, I, you know, I, I don't want to knock the people who are working really, really hard to raise funds for these sorts of causes, because you could also argue, well, what are you going to do with all these, these orphaned orangutans, right? You can't just leave mm-hmm. them to die. You've got to do something about it. Um, so I think, you know, they do serve quite a, quite an important function in orangutan conservation. But as you say, it's, um, you know, to sort of turn everything into a matter of individual and consumer choice is, is a very depoliticizing um, device. Um, it, it sort of, it makes it sound as if what you're doing is, is quite simply um, an inherent good. Uh, and that, that because you're already, you know, making this effort and you're making a difference, you don't really have to think too hard about the wider um, global structural uh, inequalities that are at work in these situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly one of the things that I find really problematic about a lot of um, kind of social media discussions of um, the plight of the orangutan, which I've been following um, quite a lot, um, it is the is the sort of daily veiled racism that you sometimes find in individual supporters' uh, responses. You know, it's very easy for people to um, stand on the sidelines and say, "Oh my God, these these villagers are so cruel. They're so ignorant. They're so horrible. Don't they care about baby orangutans? I hope they get strung up. I hope they die. You know, I, I hope they get they they meet with horrible grisly fates." Um, these these Indonesians are so mm. awful, and it's sort of you know when I read these comments, it just sort of makes my stomach clench because it, you start to realize the full extent of the sort of depoliticization of that um, that consumer choice mm. narrative. It, it, it stops you thinking about these much bigger political and structural problems that actually need to be addressed if if orangutan conservation is to work. This reminds me, uh, as you know, like I'm uh, an anthropologist and an archaeologist as well. And, you know, like this week, a lot of people are talking about how um, possible conflict in Iran will destroy a lot of like cultural Mm -hmm. heritage, which is important to raise awareness about. And the fact that like, you know, some people want to destroy those heritage sites uh, is a big problem. There is still also the, the, the cost of a possible war, which would you know, really affect people's lives <laughs> and, you know, survival, like people will become uh, victims or people will become like refugees. And it's like, uh, there's a lot of like, um, what I can see in, in my circles of archaeologists, like a lot of people raising awareness of these heritage sites, uh, but not the people 
as well, like the mm-hmm. living people who will be affected. And that, that's, that's what this reminds me of. It's like it's something uh, kind of removed from, from humans. Um, so it's kind of easier to speak up or do something about it, uh, sign petitions, mm-hmm. donate money to causes. But it's uh, to actually confront the fact that like it's people, it's people being bad to other people. Um, mm-hmm. That is too hard to kind of swallow for most uh, individuals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, the, I think the other interesting thing, um, which I guess is, is partly an answer to your previous question as well, is that there is, you know, that there's a sort of parallel emergence here of um, a certain notion of ownership and responsibility, um, which you also find in these these discourses about saving cultural heritage or saving the orangutan. Um, and what one of the things that my team and I have been looking at is how you know, at, at, at sort of this end of the world, when you're kind of safely removed from the problems of war, from deforestation, you know, from, from kind of meddling governments, whatever, um, it's very easy to feel this sense of ownership of the world's cultural heritage or the world's biodiversity, right? So when you, when you look at the way um, people in the global north, for example, portray orangutans, they often talk about them as... Mm-hmm kind of ours you know it's they they belong to the planet they belong to the forest of the planet they belong to all of humanity and so humanity has to own that problem we cause the problem and so we have to solve it um but of course what they mean by humanity is a very very sort of vague (laughs) um figure of the human um which doesn't necessarily take into account the people who are actually squashed in between um but because a lot of the sort of current rhetoric encourages people in the west to think about orangutans or about Iran's, um, you know, cultural heritage sites as belonging to the world, um, there is also this kind of pervasive sense that yeah, we've got the right to do something about it because it doesn't, you know, orangutans don't just belong to Indonesia and Malaysia; they belong to the world. They're kind of their planetary property in a way, um, and that also, you know, that does actually give rise to other kinds of complications and tensions. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to like these uh, like complex issues, I always see like anthropologists as being particularly skilled at like dissecting them and, uh, you know, just facing how complex things can be. And it's almost like the more complicated it is, the the more it encourages us to think of new research questions and pursue new research questions. Mm. And I'm wondering, like, do you find it uh, challenging at all? Do you find it exciting? Do you find it um, like, does it give you hope that like there are there's you and like some other uh, colleagues who are working alongside you who want to you know really delve into these complexities? Mm. Oh, it's, it's it's incredibly exciting, um, and I think one of the things about you know having this particular European grant is that it's it's very generous and that it's it sort of brought me out of a lot of my regular university duties, like teaching and admin for a certain chunk of time, and that's been absolutely invaluable because these are the sorts of incredibly complex ethnographic and analytical and conceptual questions that actually do take up an awful lot of brain work. <laughs> sort of, um, you, you kind of do need that, that space to just sort of reflect and mull over what on earth is going on. And I should say, actually, that you know, I, I owe a huge debt to my research team uh, because a lot of what, uh, what's emerging, you know, what I've just said, has really emerged from our collective discussions where we just put our different experiences and our findings in dialogue with each other and just talk things through for about two or three hours. Um, and that's been incredibly sort of um, 
rewarding for me because it's not a sort of model of anthropology mm-hmm. that I'm used to. You know, most social anthropologists work as sole field workers and individuals. Um, we're not always very good at actually talking to other people working on basically the same thing um, in such comparative depth. So that's, that's been a really interesting sort of an exciting development for me. Um, and yes, absolutely. We, you know, the more we find out about these things, uh, the more questions we start to have to ask. Um, it's, it's, you know, at first I thought that we were, that, that the whole point of this, this research project was to try and piece together a jigsaw. And once we piece together a jigsaw of the way this, this global nexus of orangutan um, conservation works, that would be fine. We'd, we'd sort of have a clear sense of what was going on. But actually what we're finding is that this jigsaw just keeps getting bigger and bigger and we're finding more and more holes all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're already finding, you know, ideas and leads that we'd love to pursue in the future, but that we can't um, actually manage within the time frame of this of this project. So it's been very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say, though, is that complexity can also be paralyzing. And I think this is a big problem that a lot of anthropologists um, face. You know, when, when you become immersed in a field site for that length of time um, and, and you sort of get entangled in these different sorts of social relations, it's sometimes very, very difficult to do more than just say, oh, it's complicated, and then write about it and analyze right. it. And I think that's a very strong temptation to kind of allow yourself to get um, stuck in, in that mud in a way and, and not really, you know, and sort of wallow a bit and, and enjoy it and, and not really bother to try and find a way out mm-hmm. of it. Um, but one of the really interesting and challenging thing that we've been working on um, in this project is actually pulling ourselves out of that complex mess and actually trying to convey some of our insights and findings to the wider world, um, particularly through um, public-facing outputs and also through our work with um, conservation scientists and organizations. And that presents a very different challenge because what you're then having to do is wade through the complexity and somehow try to pick up or distill um, points that you think will have the most resonance with these non-anthropologists. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been really, really challenging. It's a skill that we've all had to try and learn. Mm-hmm. But I think it's been a really important skill because it's sort of it, it, it's drawn us away from the sort of self-indulgent um, you know, conceptual experimentations and theorizing that sometimes anthropologists can get stuck in and made us think much more carefully about how exactly we're engaging in the world and how we can do it responsibly. Mm -hmm. And uh, have you um, so far, I know that you, um, you know, a lot of your work previous to this orangutan project concentrated on like the anthropology of religion and identity. Mm -hmm. What what happens uh, when you, you know, are now speaking to a lot of conservation scientists as well? Is there good, um, like complement there between between you know anthropologists that you're working with and conservation scientists that you're working with. Yeah, it's been it's been really interesting actually. Um, it, it's been so one of the things that that we've been working on in the last kind of year, well, in the last year basically, um, is a jointly authored article that's just about to come out in People and Nature uh, between orangutan conservation scientists and social scientists, so mainly um, social anthropologists working on my research team, but also a number of other social social scientists. Um, and that was a really interesting challenge in cross-disciplinary conversation and 
uh, writing because in, in trying to pull that article together, and this was based on a workshop which I convened in uh, at the end of 2018, where I actually just decided to force social scientists and, and conservationists to just sit down, you know, across one table and talk to each other for a day. Um, uh, you know, we've had to learn different languages, different epistemological frameworks, but also different baselines, which I found. I think that's the thing that I found most challenging. That you know, in this workshop, what emerged was that. Social scientists and conservationists in that room, at least, had very, very different baselines. We we drew the lines at different points. So, you know, for for, for conservationists, um, there's always going to be a line drawn when there's a threat of an orangutan dying. Um, whereas, as a social scientist, you know, as a social anthropologist, because of my particular background, because I'm sort of more instinctively, um, I guess, aligned with the concerns and the interests of of indigenous people in Borneo, for example, mm-hmm. um, I was much more agnostic about that. And, you know, I was sort of posing questions like, um, okay, so what if you had a pet baby orangutan in a village uh, that would probably, you know, be caged or die of malnutrition in, in several years. Um, but then if you if you tried to come in and confiscate that orangutan, as conservationists would always mm-hmm. do, uh, what if that completely destroyed your long-term relations with that community? Would you be willing to sort of sacrifice that one baby orangutan in the interest of preserving longer-term relations with that group? Right. Now, I mean, that's a horrible dilemma to be in, and I hope, you know, nobody has to be in that dilemma, but that's the sort of reality of the situation on the ground. Um, and it was very interesting that, that when you posed these sorts of complex dilemmas, that was when the, the difference between people's um, analytical and moral baselines would start to become clear. Um, so it, it's been a really interesting uh, learning process for me, but, but I think also for conservation scientists. I think many, many of them were also saying during the workshop that they, haven't, that they hadn't been in this sort of sustained dialogue with um, social anthropologists, particularly of their particular area, um, in the past. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of hoping that the learning is happening on both mm-hmm. sides. That's really interesting uh, because uh, I went to, for my undergrad, I went to like the University of Kent, where mm. we have a school of anthropology and conservation. And uh, yeah, it, it was sort of like embedded in the in the lectures and seminars that we had that, you know, you're, we're going to talk about human societies, but we're also going to talk about the relationship with, you know, animals and and the world around us as well as part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. And um, there was like a lot of overlap there in in what we were Mm -hmm. exposed to. Um, Do you think that this is like a growing area and do you think it's making its way back into the classroom, this sort of interdisciplinary approach? I hope so. Um, And I think Kent is is, is a fairly special and unusual example of a department that actually consciously tries to put these in in productive dialogue rather than having them as separate streams. Uh, You know, I'm thinking, for example, in Cambridge, uh, where you can do SOCANS and BioANS, but then you do them as, as, as kind of separate streams rather than actually having them combined in any sort of meaningful way in, in a lecture course, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think what Kent is doing is actually really important. Um, but at the same time, I think there's also a need to be quite cautious um, about interdisciplinary uh, connection because I think there's always a danger that when you put um, people from different disciplines together, there's this perennial risk of disciplinary boundaries being re-erected. Mm. Uh, as a sort of defense, you know, either as a kind of defense mechanism or as a way of um, really foregrounding the distinctiveness of their particular discipline. Uh, And this can be good or bad. So, you know, I've been in interdisciplinary settings where actually 
things got quite fractious because people were not engaging on the same plane. Uh, whereas, you know, I've been in other settings such as that, that um, workshop that I convened, um, where actually because we had a single case study, which was orangutan conservation, we were then able to um, talk really quite productively, but also quite candidly and critically about the different um, affordances, or, you know, the, the, the different contributions that each discipline um, could make to one particular case study. This was, this was an area of shared interest for us. So I guess it has to be done quite carefully. Mm -hmm. And I think certainly having um, bridges like a shared topic of interest, like orangutan conservation, can be extremely helpful in that respect, because it really does help to ground um, these disciplinary exchanges in, in the real world. Mm -hmm. I have this like pet theory about like how when the when there are you know questions to be answered or problems to be solved uh, these days in the world where you know it really is that like a lot of things a lot of issues that are happening are sort of interlinked with one another that requires a lot of researchers from different social sciences and sciences to you know band together mm -hmm. basically and to you know, uh, break down those barriers between disciplines so that they get mm. at something that answers all the complex questions all at once. Um, but sometimes that is impossible. Sometimes it's like a matter of like funding or um, opportunity to engage. Sometimes it's a, it's a matter of people just simply not wanting to. Mm -hmm. It's threatening, basically. You, you have to give up some of um, your access to information or resources and share them with others so that then you can work together. But then like it's very, it's just a very interesting time for me, like uh, just looking at it in the last 10 years since I started my undergrad that there really is a lot of more, uh, I, I see a lot of research being steered in this way, like towards, you know, long author lists on papers, loss of collaborations, more edited yeah. books as opposed to single authored books. Um, I just find it really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I, I think there's been a certain kind of uh, fetishization of interdisciplinarity in some ways. You know, it, it's always there in, in funding calls. It's, it, it's one of the things that universities love talking about. Um, whether or not it actually is productive in real life. And I think, you know, there are many instances, instances in which it is incredibly productive. Um, but I think we also have to be quite careful about uncritically celebrating it as the magic solution to everything. Um, the other thing I would add to, to, to the list of complications that you raised um, is that there are always these ethical and political concerns that we have to juggle um, in these in these sorts of um, collaborations because different disciplines have different ideas about responsibility and accountability and um, I guess data shareability. Mm -hmm. So you know, just to give you a very straightforward example, um, if if you're a social anthropologist working in a village where somebody's just killed an orangutan, which is illegal, um, it's also the absolute worst thing that could happen if you're a conservationist. Um, what is your ethical obligation if you're working with conservationists as well? You know, what, what do you say, which does happen, if uh, your conservation partners come up to you the next day and say, well, any news? Have you seen anything interesting? Mm -hmm. What's going on? Um, you know, do, do you then kind of prioritize your, your loyalties to your conservation partners? And that's, that's a very specific model of data sharing and accountability to a specific thing, in this case, conservation or biodiversity preservation. 
Or do you prioritize your loyalties to the people with whom you work, which is a social anthropological thing, right? You, you always make sure that the people you work with are at the center of your agenda. Um, and that's also a really difficult thing to navigate, particularly if you're working in, in a really quite fraught and uh, contentious field like orangutan conservation. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree. There's, you know, there's been a lot of talk about interdisciplinarity and how it's going to solve all the great problems of the world. I think we also do have to be really, really careful about how mm-hmm. we manage the relations between disciplines and these sorts of mm-hmm. exchanges. So uh, we're at the start of the year. Uh, what do you hope for in 2020 in terms of uh, what you would like to see in, in your research or those of your teams uh, or in the field in general? Uh, so we are very much in the middle of our fieldwork period. Uh, we're kind of at various stages of our research, but it's basically um, still very much the stage of primary data collection and also lots of comparative uh, conversations. So what I'm hoping in the coming year is that we're going to be able to start writing up uh, some of our findings. I'm particularly excited about trying to write things up jointly as a team of social anthropologists, which is relatively unusual in social anthropology, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as a kind of manifestation of the ways in which our thoughts and our ideas have evolved through our conversations with each other. Uh, so that's kind of, that, that's our main goal for this year. You know, it's just kind of taking stock of what we found in our field work, starting to write things up, starting to make a bit more sense of what we're doing. Um, at some point, I really want to try and find time to finish my second book about uh, the dam construction and resettlement scheme. That will happen at <laughs> yeah. some point. Uh, it's just you know, a matter of finding time. Um, and I think the other thing that we're going to be trying to work on a bit more is learning to become better at engaging uh, with the wider world, which which I mentioned a bit earlier on. It, it's still it's not a skill that uh, is very well taught in PhD programs. I think it, it's not something that uh, that's been prioritised. Mm-hmm by most PhD programs, particularly in, um, you know, quite prestigious old universities where where this model of um, academia is kind of scholarly innovation and, um, you know, conceptual creativity is still still very much whole sway. Um, but it is something that I think is, is really important for us to learn because I don't want us to just get bogged down in, in the sort of complexity that, that we were talking about earlier. I do want our work to actually make a difference in however small a way it might make a difference. You know, I don't want to be, I don't need to be out there being a kind of Twitter don or or radically overhauling government policy mm-hmm. or anything like that. I, I kind of see ourselves as trying to work in small, quiet background ways with specific um, parties like conservationists um, to try and enact change in more quotidian, you know, in more everyday mm-hmm. manners. Um and that's something that we really do need to try and work on. So, yeah, I guess that's mainly mm-hmm. it for this year. I think that this is, uh, like I've had several other uh, guests on the show before, anthropologists and primatologists who like work in Madagascar or work in Western Africa. Mm-hmm. I think that this is uh, this this combination, I guess, of ethnography and conservation is is happening in a, in a variety of contexts. Mm. Yes, it is. It is. Um, and in fact, there's a whole new kind of emerging field called conservation social science, um, which is quite exciting. Um, uh, you know, it's actually a field that doesn't just try to put conservation and social science together, <laughs> separate things, but actually tries to properly integrate them um, into, a, into a proper field of analysis. Um, and I think the important thing about that is that it also, it's an approach that insists on including social science, well, social scientists, not just social science methods and and knowledge, but social scientists Mm -hmm. in conservation projects and discussions from the beginning. 
which hasn't always happened. It's, it's, it's not uncommon for social scientists to be brought in after a conservation project has started. Right. Um, and I think this is a, a really kind of important development uh, within, within the field of conservation mm-hmm. in, in this relationship between conservation and the social sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this has been great. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all of this information with us. Thank you. Uh, it's been fun. Where can people find you online if people have any questions? Do you have social media or something? Uh, yes. So I am on Twitter. So my, my handle is just Liana underscore Chua. And um, if people go to my Brunel University webpage, which I can't remember offhand, but mm-hmm. I'm sure it's Googleable, um, there will be links to all my relevant project websites and publications. So, yeah. Uh, before we go, I also ask every guest to come up with a hashtag for the episode. It's kind of like a secret at the end so that people can indicate that they've listened all the way through. Can you think of a good hashtag for this one? How about people and primates? People and primates. That's an excellent hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Well, is there anything that you feel that we haven't covered already? Do you have anything, uh, like any closing messages? Uh, no, I think I, you know, I think I've probably talked enough and it, it's been really nice just to have the opportunity to, to sort of think aloud about some of my recent findings and, and experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. <laughs> no, no problem. I'm, I think that the listeners will really enjoy this episode. Listeners, if you want to find more information about the Anna's work, then go to arcananth.com. Thank you so much to the patrons who keep the show going. If you also want to become a patron, then go to patreon.com slash arcananthpod to find out the benefits of doing so. New episodes come out on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram. Liana, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been great fun. And uh, listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you.